This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, March 20th at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 largely, so if you turn in your Bibles there, I'm going to be actually all over the place, uh, partly 26, partly 27, and I will go into it as we get going. As we prepare to celebrate Easter, uh, what is the most important day in the Christian faith, contrary to what culture might say, is Christmas. Excellently, hugely important, but not like Easter. Uh, as we've been preparing for that, we've been spending time considering really the last days of Jesus' life prior to His crucifixion in the book of Matthew. And in these last days, as we've seen, Jesus says things that would have really shocked the Jewish ears. And Matthew writes primarily to, to Jews. Um, and in the view of the Jewish culture as Jesus is speaking things, uh, they would perceive Him as declaring really false prophecies about the future. Uh, they would uh, see Him as, as making heretical claims about uh, His identity. Uh, and then we would actually... Uh, they would perceive Him as teaching demonic doctrines about God the Father. They were not uh, very excited about what Jesus was doing. And these men, namely the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, had devoted their lives to knowing God's Word, and they all reject Jesus because of what they believe God's Word says. Um, now, more than once, Jesus calls them blind guides and hypocritical teachers who have heads full of knowledge and hearts full of pride. And he actually tells them in John chapter 5 that you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. He basically tells them, like, you guys know your Bibles, but you missed the whole point, and that's why you're rejecting me. Well, for hundreds of years, they and their fathers before them have been waiting for what was predicted as another prophet like Moses, and they've been waiting for another priest like Aaron, and they've been waiting for another king like David, this, this prophetic Messiah that was going to come. And in these last days, Jesus reveals Himself very overtly, although they're blind to it, as those three things, as the prophet, as the priest, as the king. And we see that He prophesizes His death multiple times as I'm going to be crucified, then I will be raised, and even his own disciples don't really hear him. As the priest, he identifies himself as the sacrificial lamb, the one who's going to make the covenant and be, if you will, the sacrifice of that covenant. And in today's text, we're going to see several times that he confirms that he is the coming king who is destined to rule forever. But Jesus if you know anything about him, he's a rather unexpected king. He offends everyone with his person and his teaching, whether they're religious or irreligious. We kind of have this idea that like, oh, sinners all flock to Jesus. You realize sinners killed Jesus. And so everyone didn't like Jesus. There were certainly those that, that gravitated towards him, but at the end of his life, everyone fled from him. Now, if we categorize these groups of people, what you have is Jesus is being rejected by everyone, including leaders, including military soldiers, including priests, um, everyone. And yet, ironically, as we go through Matthew chapter 27, each of those groups all identify him as king in their own way, and perhaps accidentally, but certainly prophetically. 
through their mockery, they end up praising the one who is king, who has humbly given himself into their hands. And therein lies the difference between an earthly king and a heavenly king. Earthly kings, we're going to see, um, take. They take for themselves. And they ultimately force you to look down on other people. But our heavenly king does something that's quite radical. He gives of himself, and he does so in order that we'll see others actually more important than ourselves. Now, the whole theme of what I'm going to talk about today is this simple fact, and that is that whatever or whomever, but whatever king rules your inner heart is going to be the king that rules your outer life. That is the truth, not a matter of like, well, this will probably happen. Whomever or whatever is ruling your heart is going to rule how you live. Now, get some context for, for Jesus as king. Um, the Jewish people had been waiting, as I said, for hundreds of years for this promised king. And if you know anything about Old Testament history, you know that Israel, the Jewish nation, had uh, many kings. It actually had one king in that one guy was ruling the whole nation for only about 120 years. And that was actually divided over three guys. Uh, you may have heard of the first king. His name was Saul, and he reigned for 40 years. Uh, the second king was named David, and he reigned the whole nation for 40 years. And then the third king was Solomon, his son, and he reigned for 40 years. And so that was the only time, that 120-year time period, where there was one king ruling the whole nation of Israel because after Solomon's reign, it got divided into two nations. The south was called Judah, and the north was called Israel. And it got divided because God said, Solomon, you've led your people into idolatry, basically, and it was somewhat of a punishment, and the Assyrians end up coming down and conquering, and all kinds of bad things happen. But ultimately, you have two distinct nations, Judah and Israel, Israel again in the north, Judah in the south, with a bunch of different kings. In fact, uh, over the history, I think there were upwards of 40-ish different kings, and about 80% of those kings were bad. So as you read the Old Testament, you see most of the kings you read about are pretty horrible people who lead the people into idolatry more often than not. But before um, Solomon took things from bad to worse, though he had a great kingdom, again, led into idolatry, before that happened, God had made a promise to his dad, David. And David had been told near the end of his life that something was going to happen. A king was going to come one day. And in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, uh, it says this, When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so he says, this king's going to come, David, from your line. You will be here someday, and Later, we have different prophecies coming, some that become very uh, often quoted at Christmas and other times. One is out of Isaiah chapter 9, and again, reminding what's going to happen, that this king is going to come one day, this, this son is going to be born, this child is going to come, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government. And of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it in justice with righteousness from this time and forevermore. 
Okay, so Isaiah comes. He's going to be a king. He was obviously later than David. And then Jeremiah comes as well, another prophet. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness. And my point is, there was a predicted king that was going to come. The Jews were waiting for a king. They were waiting for a ruler. It wasn't a normal ruler. It was a ruler whose kingdom was going to extend forever. So the Jews, if you think of the context that Jesus is now in, having been over hundreds of years conquered and exiled and ruled and enslaved at times by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and now the Romans, they are very eager for a king to show up. And they're eager for a king to show up and overthrow what is a godless government that is devoted to idolatry. And so when Jesus enters Jerusalem, which today is Palm Sunday, right? When he enters Jerusalem on that day, they're excited. They've, they've known for three years of this Jesus of Nazareth who's gone around and blessed people and healed people and done all these amazing things, and they're thinking this could be the guy. This could be the king that we've been waiting for, and the Jewish leaders are suspicious. The Jewish leaders are wanting to kill him because they're, they're fearful that not only is he just a false teacher, but they're going to take their power. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt on this most important week in Jewish history, in Matthew 21, the crowd starts to yell. And what does the crowd yell? But they spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. He's king. That, that's, this, is, this is it. And they're excited that the king is coming. And they're excited because they're thinking, Rome is out of here. Because this king is going to come and establish his rule forever. And this king was going to come and overthrow the powers that, that enslaved us. And they're excited. This wasn't the first time that Jesus actually had been identified as the promised king. In fact, actually before Jesus was even born. There was an angel named Gabriel who came and talked to a young teenage mom. Well, not a mom yet. A teenage virgin named Mary. We kind of forget some of these little statements that the angels make. And I'm just trying to give you a bigger story. I think sometimes we come into church and we, we get like these uh, little snippets of, hey, you know, here's the five ways to become a Christian. Go. We don't get the whole story of God of what's going on. It's much bigger. In Luke chapter 1, this angel said to Mary, who was going to conceive a son, and he said in verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Okay, talking about Jesus. That's not where he stops. Verse 32, he'll be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, in his kingdom, there will be no end. So what is Mary told? This is the king. This is the king you're waiting for. It's the king that, that God prophesied hundreds of years ago. She's Jewish. She understands. But as I said, Jesus was a very unexpected king. Like he was, they were expecting a king, but not like Jesus. 
He confuses everyone with his origins, which are suspicious at best. Virgin birth, come on. And he offends everyone with his teachings. As I said, both religious and irreligious. And as a result, he's rejected by everyone. But as I said, as they reject him, every group identifies him as king. You have to read it carefully. But it comes through over and over and over again. And Matthew's trying to to point us to something. When you combine the four Gospels, and we've talked about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you were to read them all together and kind of harmonize them and get the full story, you, you get different portrayals or different pieces of it and, and you put it together, and this is what you get. We learn that as Jesus, as, as this week historically unfolds, actually it wouldn't be this week, it would be the end of April, but according to our calendar, as the week unfolds and Thursday night comes to an end where he is a, secretly arrested in the garden, we talked about that last week, he's falsely accused first before a, a kind of a... a temporary court, it's not even a real court, a guy named Annas. He's a former high priest, and he's actually the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. So they first take him to this guy. Then they take him to the real high priest after they question him, and there he is actually kind of formally but illegally tried for blasphemy, for, for basically uh, identifying himself as the Messiah, for uh, making even uh, divine claims about himself. And so gathered at this, at this place where they're at are the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and other religious leaders, and they all want to see him dead. And after what amounts to kind of a charade of a trial, bringing up false witnesses to kind of make up stuff about Jesus, Jesus doesn't say a word the entire time, but they decide that he is guilty of blasphemy and deserves death. And the problem is the Jews can't kill anybody under Roman rule. So what they do is begin to trump the charge up to treason. Well, if we say that he's claiming to be king, then Rome will have to get involved. So they eventually take him to different people. They take him to Herod. They eventually take him to uh, the governor, uh, Pontius Pilate. And as he sits before the governor, here's what he says. Can I get that? Is that not working? Whatever. Matthew chapter 27. You got your Bible? (laughs) Matthew 27, verse 11. He's standing before the governor and carefully read what he says. It says, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, if you read earlier, they never really said anything about king, right? But now Pontius Pilate is heard what they've said, why they brought him to him, like, ah, he's, he's claiming to be king. So he asked him, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so, which is like Jesus' way of saying, heck yes I am. But you've said so. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single, to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. So he sits there, and he's pretty much accused of being a defenseless king. He can't defend himself, right? He clearly, he, see, he's not even saying anything. He knows it's true. 
The governor doesn't desire to condemn Jesus. He sees him as an innocent man, and he offers to release him, and, and instead, um, well, he kind of gives him an option. So you can, we'll release this guy named Barabbas, who is a total slimeball murderer, horrible person, or Jesus, who he's made some weird claims. Which one do you want? They're like, oh, we'll take Barabbas. Give us the slimeball killer and crucify Jesus. And Pontius Pilate's pretty stunned. But he agrees. And sinless Jesus, in a very real way, is substituted for a slimy sinner. And he's sentenced to death. And he's delivered over to professional soldiers who know exactly what they're doing, who will prepare him for crucifixion. And to prepare him for crucifixion would mean basically to rip his body up so he could start the bleeding and the death earlier. And there they mock him as king. If we read Matthew chapter 27, we go further. Verse 27, it says, The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered a battalion before him which would have been many soldiers. He's sitting before all these soldiers. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Again, nothing that they were required to do, but mocking him as what? King. And kneeling before him, You see this happening? The soldiers, all these soldiers kneeling before him. Oh, hail, king of the Jews, in this robe, in this crown, bleeding. And they spit on him. And they took a reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, they put his own clothes on him, and they led away to crucify him. So they mock Jesus as this pretend king. And they go to great lengths to do this. You wonder, did they do this with everybody they crucified? Did they do this with the two robbers, you know, that are crucified with Jesus? Like, oh, Mr. Robber. Like, just Jesus. And then finally, he's lifted up on the cross, which we will observe this Friday. And I pray that you do take some time to observe that as a family or as a road group with friends. But he's lifted up on the cross to give his life in between two thieves who spent their lives taking from others. And in verse 37 of that same chapter, chapter 27, it says, over his head they put the charge against him. What was he guilty of? This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, this is Jesus, the guy who pretended to be the king of the Jews. This is Jesus who claimed to be the king of the... This is Jesus the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Well, big talker, get off the cross. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Can you imagine him hanging there dying and getting yelled at like, come on. Didn't you like raise someone from the dead and you can't get off a cross? And then notice in verse 41, it says, also the chief priests and the scribes and elders. These are the guys that 
that brought him to Pontius Pilate. Notice what they say. He saved others. He cannot say himself, he's the king of Israel. I thought you said he pretended to be the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He will in a few days. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Men who are dying next to him are mocking him. Now, if anything, this this demonstrates just how comprehensive the rejection of Jesus was. Like, there was no one that's like, well, I wouldn't have crucified Jesus. Everyone, even the guys dying on the cross next to him were like, yeah, you're a loser. Like, everyone rejected Jesus. Everyone. But it's not just that it was comprehensive. His rejection was very specific. And what I mean by that, I think I put it up here. It's not going to come up, so I'll just say it. And that is this. The world does not reject, think about this. The world does not reject Jesus as teacher. The world does not reject Jesus as servant. The world doesn't even reject Jesus as good example. The world rejects Jesus as king. As ruler of all. There are plenty of people who say, I like Jesus. I love what he taught. Is he king? There are many Christians who will say, I like Jesus. He tells me what to do. Does he? Does he really? Does he rule? Is he the Lord? Is he king? One of the primary reasons why Jesus, I think, was rejected by all of these people and by really everyone is that he doesn't um, establish his kingdom in the most typical ways. Like we, it's interesting in this political environment we're at, um, I'm not sure we're looking for the most humble leader. Uh, You don't have uh, political pundits going, well, in that debate, this man really revealed his humility. (laughs) Let's (laughs) campaign for him. Like, no, it's, it's, it's the... Machismo, right? It's the charisma. It's this is what I'm going to do. You know, Jesus never did that. He establishes his kingdom in humility. In humility. Now, how do we know, and this is what anyone would ask, how do we know that Jesus was an actual humble king as opposed to just a weak dude? Maybe he's just a pansy. Maybe he was just weak. And I want you to consider what he said the night he was arrested. If you turn back to, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 26, in verse 51, if you remember, and again, you've got to put all these pieces together to see what is going on here. They come to arrest, and what does Peter do? You will not take my Lord! Pulls his sword out, starts cutting ears off. Well, an ear, at least. Right? Why, why would he do that? If he knew, like, Jesus, like, by the way, they're going to arrest me. I'm going to be crucified. Um, I'm going to be delivered. The, the leaders are going to take me. Like, he said this multiple times, and Peter's, like, pulling a sword. Like, Peter's not been listening. He's expecting Jesus to be a typical king. That's why he's sleeping at night. Like, yeah, we'll wake up, and we'll be great with you, Jesus. Right? 
Then they come to arrest him. No way. This must be when we're supposed to charge Jesus. What does Jesus say? One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. This is an amazing verse. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? 60, 70,000 angels, which, have you ever seen the damage that one angel can do, right? Like, do you, do you really think I can't just go, all right, Lord, wipe them out? He says, how are the scriptures going to be fulfilled? What scripture is he talking about? What's going to happen to the king? Jesus, think about this, the one who caused the blind to see the one who caused the lame to walk, the one who caused the dead to rise, could have stopped anything and everything at any moment. But he humbled himself to the point of death. More than that, just sit on this. And this is when I watched The Passion of the Christ. I, I haven't gotten through it since the first time I saw it in the theater. Just thinking about it stirs me. I think it's one of the most... Beautifully disturbing visual depictions of Christ's death. And the thing that disturbs me most, and by disturb I mean I'm just struck in the heart by this, is that that is our God in human flesh enduring silently. Consider. Jesus, the Son of God in human flesh, freely went to the cross. The king of the universe willingly subjected himself to the judgment of a human governor. That the king of creation silently endured being spit on by mouths, mocked by tongues, and beaten by hands that he created. That the king of the Jews sacrificially died on a cross in order to forgive the sins of those who put him there. Jesus was radically humble in a way that we will never fully comprehend, no matter how humble we think we might be. Humility, strangely, is something we actually admire, but it's not something we typically celebrate. Like, we admire it in people, actually, but we don't, um, like I said, we don't pick our leaders based on it. We don't even expect it from our kings. In fact, if a king demonstrates humility, it's like weird wow, you must be kind of fancy. Back in 1 Samuel 8 um, was the record of when Israel got their first king. They actually demanded a king from Samuel, who was the priest. His kids were pretty wrecked, and they were expecting that they weren't going to be very good leaders. Like, you know, Samuel, your kids are like totally off track. You're about to die. So we need a king like all the other nations. God allowed Samuel to give them a king that they wanted. He told them, hey, don't take it personally. They're, they're rejecting me. And then through Samuel, he warned them what was going to happen when they had a king. Consider this. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, it says, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking a for a king for him, from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. 
I want you to just listen to the words you hear most often. I'm going to go through it quickly. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain. And it goes on and on. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. Essentially, God says, you know what's going to characterize earthly kings? They're going to take from you. They're going to take the best of your family, the best of your wealth, the best of your work, everything that's important to you in your life. That's what earthly kings are going to do. And that's just what earthly kings do. See, the thing about it is that even though men reject Jesus as king, we don't actually reject all kings. It's interesting in John 19, 14, which is again a, a similar record, when Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, or asked the Jews, like, about this whole, like, trial, he says, do you want me to crucify your king? And their response is, oh, he's not our king, but Caesar is. Caesar's our only king. See, it's not that we reject all kings. The question we all have to come to is like, who actually is our king? Who actually rules in our heart? And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that there is something or someone that rules your hearts and governs your life. Apart from Christ, there is something that is supremely central to your life, defining who you are, directing even your perceptions, and influencing how you act. If it's not Jesus, it's something or someone that is supremely important. And whatever rules your inner heart ends up ruling your life and how you live. If it's an earthly king, it's not difficult to figure out. Let me help you. Earthly kings take. What I mean by that, a king is, is something or someone that, that takes most of your time most of your energy, most of your money. It is that person or thing that captivates your mind when you have nothing to think about. That king is that thing that, that takes you away, not merely from the things that you feel are important, but from the things that God declares are important. And whatever earthly king rules your heart, it's that person or that thing that demands your devotion while promising ultimate security and provision and joy and never actually coming through. So you're not only a citizen of this kingdom that this king you might have is. You're governed by its value system and you are its ambassador trying to increase its influence. And often that's at a result of taking more for yourself at the expense of others. And that's why the ultimate end for an earthly king is looking down on everyone else. Because that's how kings rule. But see, Jesus is not like the kings of men who take. King Jesus only gives. He only gives. He exercises the greatest possible humility. You have God in human flesh denying himself glory and life so that others might be glorified and experience life with him. Our king is a king who gives all that he has so that we will do the same for others.
Now, Jesus' kingdom exists, I believe, anywhere he rules. And the question is, where does he rule? This is a passage I has been captivating to me for some time. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says this, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That phrase in there, that they might no longer live for themselves, but for him. When you consider that he lived for others, you begin to understand what it means to be controlled by the love of Christ. See, if you are truly ruled by the love of Christ, then you are genuinely characterized by the humility of Christ. The presence, I believe, of humility is the evidence of Jesus' rule. And I'm not suggesting, like, it's, it's, it's contradictory to say, like, well, I need to get better at humility. I'm just telling you, like, when someone surrenders to the Lord, what characterizes the control of Christ, the rule of Christ, is humility. Because you have the mind of Christ, and the mind of Christ is one of humility. More than anything, like if we're asking you, what characterizes a Christian? You'd say, good works, service, Bible reading, church attendance. I don't know what we would say, but I'm not sure the top ten would be humility. That is what characterizes someone who understands the love of Christ. And humility evidence itself simply in this, right? You go, well, what does a humble person look like? It's not just like you get a t-shirt that says, I'm humble, right? It's not like that. What characterizes humility? Well, what does it mean to be Christ-like? It means to count others more significant than yourself because that's what Christ did for us. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Now, but it's more than thinking, right? It's interesting we like, consider others more important than yourself. Like, does it ever get beyond the brain? Right, is it ever just like, well, I am humble. Why? Because I'm thinking that person's really important. And? Does anybody else see that, know that? Do they know that? Right? At some point, has to Jesus didn't just love us with sentiment. He wasn't just humble with thoughts, sending powerful thoughts to you of how much I love you. It's not merely a state of mind. Jesus humbled himself by giving himself out of love, but his love had an effect. He loved us in such a way that he emptied himself of all power. He emptied himself of all prosperity, of all prestige, not just so that we would feel loved, so that we would be reconciled with God. You can't take out that part, right? Because guess what? You can devote your life to making people just feel happy. You know what? My, my goal is just to, to make you feel loved. That's not a bad thing, but it's an incomplete thing. 
That's not how Christ loved us. Christ's love was not just to make us feel good about ourselves. It was to make us holy and reconciled to our God. In other words, we have to be careful about the kind of love we're talking about. See, genuine Christ-inspired, Christ-empowered, Christ-modeled humility always manifests itself out in sacrificial love to the point or the goal of building God's kingdom. You don't love Jesus as Savior if you don't serve Him as King. And you don't serve Him as King unless you love others like Jesus for the purpose of them experiencing the same love. I asked a question. Um, if you ever want to know like, what's the preview of coming events, just look at my Facebook posts and they think, you'll see what I'm thinking about. And the question that has been stirring in me is this idea, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to ever ask this, But if Jesus' rule really has its effect, like I can't stop it, has its effect on, on me. If Jesus suddenly ceased to rule my life, how would it change? I'm not even suggesting that's like a volitional choice we make, like, no, you're no longer ruling me. Like, if we truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, he did what he said he did, and that creates a rule, a control of, of I'm controlled by that love, I'm ruled by that love, if that suddenly went away, how would my life look different? Maybe a better question is, how would my love look different? And if it doesn't look any different, perhaps it's not really a love that's rooted in understanding how much Christ has loved me. If we want to talk about what transforming love looks like, I think it's this, and I'll close with this. What's love like Christ? Here's what I think it looks like. Humble, sacrificial, gospel-inspired love. First and foremost, it's physical. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus really bled. Jesus really died. Jesus really came and dwelled with us. Like, it's tangible. It's real. It's not just mind. It's not just, you know, sentiment. It's tangible. My love should be felt. My sacrifice should be measurable, not on some star chart with, with God, but the fact that I'm giving something. I, it's physically impacting me. It can be touched. I think it's beautiful that when we take communion, we actually touch something to remind us that what is physical matters to God. That when we're feeding the homeless or helping those, that matters tangibly, not just, I'm going to pray for you. Fantastic, pray for them and then give them something to eat. I'm going to pray for them and then I'm going to help them. It's also a love that's emotional. What I mean is, you didn't see Jesus, right? He wasn't like, fine, I'll go to the cross, right? He was looking, if you read in Hebrews, at the joy set before him. There was a joy in his sacrifice. There was a joy in his love. It was genuine. And it wasn't, it's like this, when you, when you think about like maybe in a marriage relationship, right? And I know this never happens, but your spouse is really unlovable in the moment. It doesn't happen to me, ever. 
And God's like, love this person. You're like, yeah. You know what I look at or I imagine? The effect of my love on that person and the beauty it could draw out and the change it could have and pass, dare I say, the pain of the cross of loving someone that's unlovable in the moment. There's a joy about that. There aren't me a joy in this, but there's a joy in that, right? It's like when you're building a house or you're cleaning up weeds or whatever, like you look at it and go, this is going to be hard work. And you're not typically like, ah, zippity doo dah, right? This is fantastic. I love just, you know, working and hurting and all these things. But you're thinking of like when you get done, you go, oh, look how beautiful that looks. Look how glorious that is. And so your emotion comes from what you imagine it looking like, what you expect it to look like as you press in and you love and you serve. But it's also a love that's volitional, right? It's not dutiful. It's not, I'm going to love because pastor said. It's a choice. It's willful. I'm, I'm, I am enduring and I'm suffering because I want to. And it's motivated by the fact that that's how Jesus loved me. And I would say the last one, it's ultimate. In other words, our love that comes from, I think, inside out, knowing the humility with which Christ loved us, the ultimate goal is to point people to Christ. The ultimate goal is not to, as much as it will, bless that person. The ultimate goal is not to bless me, though I guarantee it'll feel awesome. The ultimate goal is for that person to go, wow, Jesus. And when they ask, why would you ever love? Why would you ever do this? Because Jesus loved me. Because Jesus loved me. It should result in glory and thanksgiving to God. And if it doesn't, then it's possible your self-sacrifice was only for yourself. And for that, we must be very careful. In conclusion, more than morality, more than our service, our love, I believe, is the evidence of our heavenly citizenship and the rule of Christ in our hearts. And the question that we all have to come to is to ask, what king really rules our inner heart? Because that's going to be and is the one that's ruling our outer life. And I would just warn all of us, every earthly king, every earthly king that has ever lived, whether it be a thing or a person, will demand you prove your devotion. But there's only one king, one king who came and proved his devotion to us. And that's Christ. And communion is our confession of that conviction. Period. I'd invite you as we sing for those who are in Christ, for those who have surrendered to Him, for those who declare that I have nothing to offer but Jesus offered everything for me. That He loved me and therefore He rules in me. This is for you. For those who are not believers, for those who um, are really following a different king and perhaps you're the one on the, Lord, on the throne of your life, I would ask you to consider if that's working out for you. Because what I've seen and what I've experienced and what I know is that those kind of kings just take and take and take and take and take until they have nothing else to give.
Jesus is the one that continues to give and give and give. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your love for us. And we ask that you will make